Good morning, church. Wasn't that something so beautiful? We could go home and be filled right now. So this, we've been in a series called The Lord's Prayer. Oh, no, it was not. Okay, that was a tissue moment. The Beatitudes. I don't think I've ever been in a church where we study the Beatitudes as well as we have. I don't think I have. And I think it's been wonderful. I've learned a lot. Have you? Have you enjoyed it? Whilst it's been, uh, you know, we've done that for quite a few weeks, I don't think it's been a long series. You know, this is where Jesus ushers in the truth of the gospel. You know, he invades the law and goes, here's the thing. And today I've been asked to speak on the Lord's Prayer and, you know, initially it's like, wow, what about prayer? Probably got a few things to say about that. But lucky for you, I've been given some boundaries within which to speak, so you won't be here till tomorrow. So the scripture for today is Matthew 6, verses 9 to 16. The Lord's Prayer is also found in Luke. Luke 11, verses 2 to 5. But let's read from Matthew. This is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and some translations have from the evil one. I noticed something this morning when I was reading this again. This is not what we should pray. This is how we should pray. And there's a very big difference between what and how. You know, these are not words that we just repeat over. This is the model. This is how we should pray. That was a free point. I haven't got that one down. Do you know, I, I think Jesus gave us this model of prayer because he's always very interested in us and he's interested in our hearts. When I was first given this topic to preach, I was like, what am I going to say about that? I mean, I've known the Lord's Prayer since I was little, even though I wasn't born in a Christian home. Most people know the Lord's Prayer, I think. didn't know what it all meant, but I knew what the words were. But as I looked at it and thought about it, the Lord's Prayer is a very revealing prayer. It reveals the state of our heart and it leads us to authenticity before God. So what do we need to get there? Before we look at the prayer itself, I would like to offer a little bit of a foundation and Dan, thank you, did some of that for me last week. But I thought I might recap in case you weren't here or... Um, I can offer something in a way that will be helpful to you before we launch into the prayer. So we're going to look at the concepts of motivation and our mindset. So what pro prompted Jesus to offer this model of prayer? I think there were a few things. Uh, but I think Jesus identified a fundamental problem with our reward motivation. So excuse me one moment. Thank you. I'm getting serious now. Look out. The coat is off. 
So what is reward motivation? Reward motivation is another way of saying we do things because of the reward that we receive. Now, you know that's true of you. Just, you know, we might want, not want to admit that, but this is true. We can be what we call, fancy word, extrinsically motivated. And what that means is we're motivated by what happens outside of ourselves. Like if I get a sticker for writing my words beautifully, that would be an example of extrinsic motivation. Or we could be intrinsically motivated, another fancy word, and that means I am just motivated from within myself. I want to reach my goal and I just launch forward without any hoo-ha from outside and I'm satisfied by reaching my goal. But it doesn't matter how we're motivated. I think the issue is that we are motivated by reward. Now, what was happening in Jesus' time that caused him to address reward motivation? So, historically, the leaders, the Jews, were using spiritual behaviour in a way that was a bit problematic. So, for instance, in prayer, they were speaking very loudly in a public place. It was overt, it was loud, it was very wordy, a thousand words to say two things. When they were fasting, their faces looked sour and dour and they had a bedraggled appearance so that you would know I'm fasting. I'm not saying anything, but you know. When they gave charity, they were overt. Oh, by the way, I heard you had a need. Here you go. The leaders were basically showing off by using the principles of God to do it. So what were they doing? They were attention-seeking, weren't they? They were looking for attention by how well they could pray. You know, believing that from their wordiness, God would answer their prayer and trying to dazzle people with how wonderfully they can pray. Jesus saw that this was a fleshly motivation. I want you to think I'm fab. So I'm going to do all these things so you do think I'm fab. You adore me and respect me. And that's a fleshly motivation. Despite your actions being good, it's a fleshly motivation. A fleshly motivation is entirely satisfied with a fleshly reward. And the fleshly reward is, you think I'm fab, don't you? On the spot, right there. See? Ah, fab. So there's my fleshly reward. I've got my reward in full because that's what I was after. They didn't want anything from God. They weren't interested. That was just a vehicle they used to gain what they wanted. But Jesus isn't fooled by what appears to be, despite wonderful behavior. There was a lack of authenticity before God in their behavior, in their thoughts, and what they did. And Jesus called this hypocritical. Now, by way of contrast, there is a reward motivation that perhaps looks like a knee-jerk or a reaction to this hypocritical behavior 
Um, and perhaps it's a display of pride or perhaps it's, um, it's an attempt to be more spiritual than others. But when I thought about it, I thought perhaps this isn't the opposite. Perhaps this is just more of the same and we see this more in modern times. And it's a movement that, that those within it would like to see that their motivation, their behaviour is not motivated by anything. It's not motivated by anything. They want to actually get rid of reward motivation altogether. That their behaviours are pure and absolutely altruistic, if you know that word means. I'm just doing it because I'm good. You know, and it's a little bit like God. God doesn't really have a motivation. He just does things because he's good. And so this movement wants to be like that and feels that that is a state that can be achieved. So they lament and wail. And I wouldn't be surprised if we end up with a bit more self-flagellation, you know, the whipping of the flesh, um, that, they, that they require reward for their behaviour. They lament that. They want to be like God and just do things because of love. So what does God think about reward motivation? I think we need to know that before we launch into anything. So, interestingly, this is how God made us. He was the one that made us. He was the one that made us to behave for reward. So he doesn't think this is bad at all. He's not asking us to lament over our reward-seeking behaviours. He's not criticising us for them at all in the Lord's Prayer. He's just making an adjustment from a fleshly motivation to a godly motivation. It's just an adjustment. Both hold rewards for us. Fleshly motivation and godly motivation are both rewarding. The fleshly reward, however, leads us to death. And the godly motivation leads us to life. So what will my motivation be? So having laid that foundation of motivation now, let's have a look at the mindset of the prayer itself. A global view of the prayer is interesting. Have we got it up? Perhaps. A global view of the prayer is interesting because you notice something. Because all of the personal pronouns in the passage are all collective. So what do I mean by that? It's our Father, it's not my Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, give us our daily bread, not give me, give us. So all of the personal pronouns are all-encompassing and collective. So that says something to us. I think Jesus was very selective about the words he used, so I think he's communicating something to us. The Bible speaks in collective terms often. Now, this is a bit difficult for us because we live in an individualist culture. We think in terms of I and me, maintaining my independence and my goals are what I want to maintain my independence and to take me to places where I want to go. If we contrast this, however, with a collectivist culture, such as an Asian culture, they think very differently to us. They think like the goals of the group are paramount when I make my decisions, so don't think about themselves. They identify 
as a member of the group, not as an individual within the group. They, uh, their self-identities around interconnectedness and relationship with the group. And I think this is an important thing for us to work on because of our individualist culture background. Why is this distinction important? It's important because Jesus speaks in these terms and, in fact, he likens us, us as a body. Let's think about that for a moment. Romans 12, 5 says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, this is helpful because we understand a body because you all have one. So, let's imagine there's a person with a disability, and this person's name is Patsy. I don't know why I came up with that. Anyway, Patsy, and Patsy has a non-functional leg. Now, we might say that Patsy has a disability, mightn't we? We don't say that most of Patsy's body parts work, only she has a one leg that doesn't work. We don't say that. We say Patsy has a disability, and that's because Patsy's disability affects her whole body. So, Patsy might walk with a limp because one leg doesn't, walk prop doesn't operate properly. Now, when you walk with a limp, you might get a sore neck and you might get a sore back because you're walking with a limp. You're walking in a way that you're not intended to walk. Her good leg might become super strong while her weak leg atrophies and gets skinny and the muscles waste away because she can't use it properly. This is true of the body of Christ. What happens to one part happens to the other part. When one part of the body is sick, the whole body is sick. Now, if I get a virus, I don't say, oh, my arms are okay, just my torso is sick. I don't say that. I say, I am sick because the virus invades the whole body. The whole body is sick. I can't have a virus and be well. If one part of our body is suffering, all the parts suffer even if you don't know you're suffering with them. This is collectivist thinking. This is groupthink that we need to foster. And it might be what Jesus had in mind when he crafted the Lord's Prayer. Now, now that we understand reward motivation, we can identify with collectivist thinking, even though you're going to have to work quite hard, and so am I, to maintain that collectivist thinking because we will default back to our individualist thinking. Let's begin to look at the verses. One, I'm going to chunk them up a little bit for you. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We begin by praying to God the Father. We pray to God the Father. We begin by adopting our posture that is spiritually correct. And our posture is that of adoption. The Father has adopted us into his family. We are now a child of the Father. We belong in the family. This is an opportunity to correctly acknowledge who God is. Hallowed be your name. Now, once we acknowledge God, what we might tend to do is to pop off and start talking about what we need from an individualist perspective, remember? We might say, I need this and I need that or I'd like that and that. But that's not where Jesus said we need to go next. We don't progress to asking for things. We praise God 
How do we do that? All right, we adopt an attitude of thankfulness for his sovereignty and his worship. And I suggest that you use scripture when you do that, when you praise God. Why? Because the scriptures know who God is. So we're going to do a good job if we use scripture to praise him. We don't, you know, this isn't a place where we say, hallowed be your name. This is a place where we say, you're amazing. You're the father who rewards the children who diligently seek him. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. You're the creator of the heavens and the earth. And you see when you know scripture, those words just flow and it's a hard place to move on from when we start praising him. Now, we're going to have a look at these chunks of Scripture and see how these are revealing of ourselves. So I've outlined a few suggestions after each chunk of Scripture for us to think about. What does this reveal about ourselves? It reveals whether we struggle to praise and worship God. There could be reasons for this. We might not know enough Scriptures to offer praise. Perhaps we wish to actively avoid God the Father. And whilst that might sound surprising, in my experience, it's not at all. It's actually relatively common. We want to avoid God the Father. We might be afraid of him and we might not trust him. That doesn't mean you might feel the same way about Jesus. Most people are more comfortable with Jesus than they might be with God the Father. This might reveal our unwillingness to offer praise at all. You might not want to. It may reveal some reward motivation problems, some inauthenticity in our spirituality or our relationship with God. Sila. Let's move on and have a look at your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, when I knew the Lord's Prayer but way back in the day, I used to think if you prayed that bit, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that somehow that will just happen. That, you know, I will pray and God will usher in the kingdom and his will. But I think we've got to think about how, how does this actually happen? I think this is an invitation to partner with him. How does the kingdom come? The kingdom comes through me, and the kingdom comes through you. How is his will done on earth? By me doing what he wants to be done. By you doing what he wants you to do. We are the ones on earth. So if we do, if we learn to hear him and understand what he wants and do it, his will is done on earth and his kingdom comes as a result. And so the kingdom of the earth starts to look more like the kingdom of heaven. This is our responsibility. This is us who partners with him. So how is this section of prayer revealing? This challenges what we think and what we do. It reveals whether we wish to surrender our wills or not. It reveals whether we are willing to do what he asks in order to bring his will to earth and it reveals how much we care about the kingdom when compared to how much we care about what I want or what you might want. It reveals how much I care about people because bringing his will to earth and his kingdom come is about other people, isn't it? 
give us this day our daily bread. What is God saying here? Where is he directing our minds right here? Is this about food? We might think so initially. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread means that loaf from Baker's Delight, toast sliced, white bread for Tony. Cape seed for me. (laughs) But the word bread here is broader than just food. It's about provision. Here we ask for provision, but notice we're not asking for provision for ourselves because it's our. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm asking for provision for you. I'm asking provision for us as a group. Where else is this directing our mind? And I think this is really important. Give us this day. Give us today. Today. There is no mention of yesterday or tomorrow. Give us today. Give us this day our daily bread. Today and only today. Our minds are often outside of today. We're perhaps ruminating on the past or perhaps we are being forward thinkers because I, I've noticed when we get to yesterday, we were thinking about today. When we get to today, we're thinking about tomorrow. It's actually a discipline to think about today. And God is saying to us, it's about today. Think about today. Today, will I ask God if he will provide for me? This reminds me of the children of Israel coming out of the wilderness. They moaned. Boy, they could moan like no other people could moan. I'm sure you don't moan like they did. Give us food, give us this, give us that. And God gave them manna, didn't he? But what did he say? Apart from the Sabbath, there was a special rule around the night before the Sabbath, but he said, collect what you need for today, for today. Now, being people, we tend to think, well, what does God know? Perhaps I'll collect a little bit more. So we started to stockpile food. Some of the children of Israel stockpiled food so they have a sneaky supply for tomorrow. So they only have to trust God once for today and tomorrow, thinking that that was probably sufficient. But what happened? That manna on the next day turned inedible, disgusting and stank. So it wasn't a desirable thing to have in your house because it was stinky and disgusting. Let's think about today. What does this reveal? It reveals what our minds think on. This is a challenge to think about today and not tomorrow. Am I anxious and fearful? If I am, I'm more than likely thinking about another time other than today. It reveals whether we trust God for provision at all or would I rather trust myself? There's a sermon right right there. That's a whole sermon. It challenges us to think about who is our provider? Does God provide? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This section of prayer, let's get right here now. Roll up your sleeves. This section of prayer is empowering It is challenging and it's revealing for people. Now, we know, according to the scriptures, that God is all forgiving. He is forgiving. He is love. He is kind. He is so forgiving 
that he sent his son to die for you so that you can be forgiven. He cares so much that you're in relationship with him that he has pulled out every stop that he's got to say, come, just as you are. If you accept my son, come, come. But notice what it says here. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, as we forget our debtors. And this reminds me of the same principle of judgment. Matthew 7 uh, verses 1 to 2, the Bible tells us, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And in the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Doesn't that sound like the same thing here? In the way that you forgive, you will be forgiven. It's the same principle. Now, what is this about? Is this about God being mean? Na, 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 na. If you don't forgive, I'm not forgiving you. I'm sitting up in heaven with my arms crossed. Too bad you. I'm waiting for you to move. I don't think that that's God at all. What happens? I think when we, we apply fleshly wisdom to any situation, we will always be the innocent party. Always. We justify ourselves. I was totally right and he just came right in and, whoa, I didn't do a fair thing. He's a jerk. And we blame the other party. It's your fault. It's your fault. Now, if we do this, we become our own justifiers. We justify our own life in spiritual places. So what are we saying to God? We're saying, I don't want your justification. I'm going to justify things with my own wisdom myself. So what we do right there is we take ourselves out of God's hand. Now, when we're out of God's hand, he can't forgive us because we've taken ourselves out. It's not God being mean. We are saying, I'm going to look after myself. How can God then forgive us? There is no place. There is no way. The Bible says that only God justifies and he is unbiased and he does so with truth. Now, forgiveness has two parts. It is one, forgiving the action that the perpetrator the person you blame, you did it, I will forgive you. Part two is letting go of the injury, the hurt, the effects of that terrible thing they did. And, you know, for some of us, we have had terrible things happen to us. I, I don't doubt that. Terrible things. Unjustifiable damage. Abuse, you know, ripping apart your life for some of us, yes. And even what someone might consider a small thing could be incredibly damaging to you. I don't think God's uncaring about that. What he's saying is, come, do things my way. 
so that I can embrace you, so that you can be in right relationship with me, so I can heal you. This is all about looking after you, even though forgiveness can seem hard when you're the victim. You know, it's like I'm a victim, I'm bearing this, and I have to forgive. It seems burdensome, but this is all about loving you and setting you free. We're all debtors, really, when you think of it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Not one of us is without debt when you think about how beautifully God loves us. It doesn't matter how fabulous you become and how much you look like him, how much I look like him, how much glory and wonder we carry, we can never repay him for that unconditional love, grace and embrace that we have from heaven. We are in his debt, so we are all perpetrators. And if we think about that, I wonder if that might make it easier for us to reach out and forgive someone else with the forgiveness that we've been forgiven with. I think that makes it a little bit easier. What happens in this section of prayer? I think this is a hard section of prayer for us. Here we get to search our heart. Am I holding unforgiveness? If so, can I let it go and let go of the hurt that has found a place in the deep parts of me? And sometimes we don't know if we're holding unforgiveness. It's so deep and the hurt has been so injurious to us that we don't know where we're holding it. We've squashed it down and covered it up with the rest of our life. But this is where we can invite the Holy Spirit to come because he shines the light and looks in the deepest, darkest places if we'd let him. And he might find something right here in this part of the prayer. Not to condemn you, not to be mean to you, but to go, oh, will you give that to me so I can take it? Give me your burden. Give me your pain. I've already died for that. I'll take that and you can be free. We can be restored back to the Father if that's what we do. Removing the barrier between us and him. That we, the people who forgive, might be blessed and that you might be blessed also. Because if I'm blessed, you're blessed. If I'm forgiven, I can give to you. How is this revealing? It reveals how willing we are to search our hearts and sometimes that's a hard thing because of the pain we have. Can I go there? It reveals how surrendered to God we're willing to be. That's a tough one. This is really where the rubber meets the road, I think. How much we want God's justification and not our own. It reveals how much we value God's forgiveness and how much we want to remain in God's kingdom. It reveals how much we want to be in right relationship with God and with our brothers and sisters, members of the body. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
here we acknowledge that we don't know all things. And if we don't know that, here's the revelation today. You don't know all things. We acknowledge that we are weak within ourselves and some things are just too tempting. We can all be tempted. We're just all tempted by different things. See, when I didn't like chocolate, you could wave that thing under my nose. You may as well be putting dirt in your hand. I couldn't care less. You know, I'm not tempted by that, but I might have been tempted by something else that you don't find tempting. God doesn't lead us into temptation. Here's the misleading part. Um, so it sounds to us because the, the Hebrew language has different forms of grammar that can lead us um, to think God is saying something that he isn't. But what we're saying is God keep us from temptation. When I am weak, keep me from that place that I might not even know is a hard place for me. Will you keep me from that? And when I am tempted, keep me safe from that thing. That's what we're saying. And I was thinking about Abraham as the first person that came to mind when I was thinking about this. And he was tested. God will test us also. And Abraham was tested to see if he would sacrifice his beloved son of promise, Isaac. Why does God allow testing? Again, is he being mean? I don't think so. Why does he want us to experience difficulty? Because I think out of the place of difficulty and triumph comes loyalty, strength, obedience, and fitness for service. This is where we get strong. And once we've done that, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Or some, some translations have the evil one. So from what do we need deliverance? This word speaks about evil, but my question is, what is evil? I think we have our own ideas about what is evil, don't we? And perhaps that's different for all of us. And perhaps this idea is a bit more complex than it first might appear. Our first thought might be that Jesus is talking about the devil, our spiritual adversary, Satan by name. And I think that that's true. But what is God's idea of evil? Perhaps we should orientate ourselves to that. Evil can be a comparative word. And by that I mean if we compare one thing with another, we might come up with something else that might be evil. When compared with God who is all good and all loving and amazing and pure and holy and perfect, anything other than that might be evil. Evil can be our thoughts or our behaviours or anything else that opposes our journey to wholeness in God. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, I know you've been born again, but can you say that you have never had a thought contrary to Scripture or a desire to do something that contravenes a word? Have you ever? You ever been pure right there? 
Probably not. So we can require deliverance from that. We need deliverance from our own wisdom. Perhaps our own sense of justice. That's problematic to us too. Our own self that wants to challenge the plans and create our own kingdom. It could be anything within ourselves that's not planted by God. I think scripturally all these things are considered evil. Evil can be anything incongruent that doesn't match God's plans and his word. I don't think particularly in this passage of scripture we need to be concerned about the origin of the evil, just that we deal with it, just that we address it. That's what God is asking us to do here. Take us away from contexts, environments that we might be vulnerable to sin in. We acknowledge that we have weakness in our flesh. We have wants and desires that turn our face and our focus from God. We need deliverance from that. We acknowledge that God sees things that we can't see that are dangerous to us. By implication, what we are saying, though, when we say that is we will obey him when he does identify something. Don't be going there. If we ask him to deliver us, then we need to obey what he says. Otherwise, we're not delivered. We've just heard something. So we hear and obey. What we are saying in this portion of Scripture is that we are placing God as our protector from ourselves, from unhelpful contexts, and from dangers of a spiritual kind. That's what we need God to do. Can I trust him to do that? This prayer, this part of the prayer is revealing it uncovers pride. When we go, no, 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 I can do it. I can see it. I know how to do it. It acknowledges our dependence on God and reveals our acceptance that we actually do experience temptation. We've got to acknowledge that if we're going to overcome temptation. It reveals our willingness to surrender to God's purposes. It reveals the value that we place on maturity and the maturation process. Will I go through the testing or not? How much do I value maturity in God? It reveals our acceptance that we're not greater than Abraham or Jesus because both were tempted here on earth. Nobody's above the process of being tested, leading on to maturity. It challenges us to obey what we don't understand. And sometimes we don't understand the testing. But will I obey it? There's the question. The Lord's Prayer is a challenging prayer, I think. It's a revealing prayer. It's not a series of words that we just repeat. It's not what we pray, it's how we pray. Something magical doesn't happen because we say these words. It's a model, it's a guideline to follow, to direct our will and accept our position as humans. We begin with the spirit of adoption, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, our praise. 
We declare our submission, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We acknowledge our reliance on God. Give us today our daily bread. And I need to focus on today and not the anxiety of tomorrow. We reiterate our desire to remain in relationship with God. Forgive us our debts and we and our acceptance of his values of forgiveness by us forgiving others. Being like him in that way, rising above ourselves. And finally, we submit to testing and trust him to be our protector. Protector of our vulnerabilities, spiritual adversity, temptation, places that place us at risk. We trust him to keep us safe. Would you close your eyes with me? Now, I'm not sure what part of that word this morning may have spoken to you, and I hope that a part of it may have. All of this is about us being in right relationship with God because He cares so much for us. All of this is teaching us how to be in Him, how to remain in Him, and how to be like Him, how to have the best life we could ever have. Our response, our response is our responsibility. And I was thinking when we were praying this morning that the hard part, the part about forgiveness could be a challenge and a barrier to some of us this morning. Can I forgive that terrible thing? That terrible thing that seems so far above forgiveness. It's been so devastating in my life. Can I forgive? And you might find it difficult in and of yourself to do that, but I've seen God do amazing things in forgiveness. If we will surrender to him, if we will say, help me to forgive, Father, that I might be like you, that I might have the freedom that you planned for me and that Jesus bought for me, I want to be free. So I don't know if that's you this morning or what part of you might like to respond to this prayer, but let me invite you, if you feel that you'd like to, to the altar. There is a place being made here for you, and the presence of God is here to embrace you and to love you, to hug you and say that he loves you, to set you free, and to empower you with what you need today today in this place there is a spirit of freedom and love if you would like to come <laughs>